Thank you for listening to Edgewood Sermon Audio. This is the sermon from October the 17th, 2021. It is Pastor Paul Fuller that will be preaching, and he'll be preaching from Joshua chapter 6. Victory is not ours. The victory is God's, right? Right. So uh, let me pray, and then um, we will dive in. God, I am so thankful that we can rest in you in the middle of a war. I, I am so, I think all of us are so keenly aware and can feel that there is a spiritual battle going on. And it's so overwhelming at times, but we can rest in Jesus who won that victory on the cross and is coming back to bring judgment for all those who have not turned to him. Pray that this morning you would help us as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So as usual, I want you to put on your thinking caps with me. Uh, Jesus shows up as a baby, right? Lives a perfect life, goes to the cross, dies for our sins, is buried, is raised. And then the rest of the New Testament talks about that glorious message of the gospel that we can be with God. And it's awesome, isn't it? I mean, that's the gospel message, really short. Jesus came, lived, and died for you and me, and we can be with him if you turn to him and accept that gift. And we preach that every week, week in and week out. You hear this story about Jesus, and we go to the New Testament and open up these passages, and it's awesome. But I think some of us sometimes forget that two-thirds of this Bible is not the New Testament, <laughs> Right? It's the, the Old Testament. And, 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 you know, some of us may um, know that, that the Bible talks in the Old Testament about Israel and things that God did. But here's what I want you to think with me a little bit. What's the value of the Old Testament for us as Christians? Okay, what, why is the Old Testament, this other two-thirds of the Bible, important to us? In fact, I... Actually, in this town, I preached one morning, and a guy, an older man, like he was in his 90s, came up to me afterwards and thanked me and said, I'm so glad you preached from the New Testament and not from the Old, because we are a New Testament church. You're like, what? I had the hard, I'm not a good poker player, but I tried to have a straight face. <laughs> That's just, that may strike you as weird, but I think if we get honest a little bit, we're like, we most of the time spend our time in the New Testament or... Maybe you open up the Psalms for some encouragement. But I want to give you a few reasons that I think that people, you would probably answer me. And that's really tiny print, but I'm sorry. Um, reasons that I think people, you may say to me, why the Old Testament is important for us as Christians. And one reason might be to help us understand ancient Israel, its real history, and even the surrounding communities. That's Maybe one reason you look at the Old Testament. 
Um, another one you may say is to help us learn how to live or not live. What is God's law? In Sunday school, we talked a little bit about God requires us to obey his law, and that, that's, uh, that's it there. You know that the Old Testament's got all these laws, right? Another reason you may say that the Old Testament has value for us is that we see examples of people's lives that teach us how to be good people or, or how not to live. That may be one of the things you see there. Uh, another reason you may say is just to like encourage your heart, like going to Psalms. They seem to resonate with us. And I'd say all those are good reasons. And actually, some of those are even talked about in the New Testament as reasons why you would go back and look at those examples, right? Those are good reasons. That's me answering the question for you. I'm going to open this up. Why else do we need the Old Testament? This is not a rhetorical question, just that. Josh. He answered my question for me. Why else would you see, use the Old Testament? He said, because everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Anything else you'd add to that? He's coming. Good. Excellent. I'm so glad. I can tell that you have a good pastor, Pastor Matt, who's been preaching to you and showed you this. Um, The Old Testament shows us who God is and shows us Jesus. Last week in Sunday school, I read from a children's storybook Bible that um, said this line, every story whispers his name. And, and that, that line was not about the storybook. It was about the Bible. Because every story in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. And you may be like, how did, why, why did Josh say that? I'm not sure how that works. So in the New Testament, after Jesus rose from the dead, there's this story about how he's walking along the road and meets up with two guys who are talking about Jesus dying. And they, they don't recognize him. And they're like just super sad about Jesus dying. And they're confused because they heard that, some, that he rose from the dead. And they think maybe he's, his body was stolen. And Jesus, they don't know it's Jesus. He starts talking with them and, and helps them understand what was going on. And I want you to see... In Matthew chapter, or Luke 24, you don't have to turn there, I'll put it up here. Why, what he says to them. He says several things, but he gets to this point and he says, Oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, when Jesus, when it says Moses and all the prophets, that's a way of saying all of the Old Testament. This morning we saw it referred to as the law and the prophets. Here it's Moses and the prophets. That's a way of just saying all of the Old Testament. He went and showed these guys through all of it. Now, he didn't probably read the whole Old Testament to them. But he went, probably, I can imagine going to Genesis and working his way forward and showing him, look, this is pointing to me. Now, how many of you have ever watched a movie and there's like clues about what's still going to happen next, right? We call that like foreshadowing. And they say something that doesn't tell you exactly what's going to happen. 
but you shout at the screen or you say to your person next to you, he's going to die. <laughs> right? You know, you feel that. That's foreshadowing, and that's not exactly what we mean when we say all these stories point to Jesus. It's different than foreshadowing. Um, it's more like shadows themselves. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul calls them. He calls them shadows in the Old Testament. Are, these are shadows pointing. So what does a shadow do? We don't have a good way of, there's hardly any shadow in here today. But you know what a shadow does. A shadow gives you kind of a silhouette of the real thing. Like you can see a shadow and know that something is real that it points to. But shadows can be skewed, right? You know, it's fun as a kid to walk and you see how tall you are or like really short. Shadows are kind of like that. They don't really show you accurately what the real thing's like, but they do show you that there is a thing, something behind that shadow. And that is what we are talking about when we say that all the Old Testament points forward to Jesus like a shadow. These shadows. And sometimes you may even hear them called types. And a type in the Old Testament, it can be a person. It can be like something that happened. It can even be a thing like the tabernacle where the Old Testament people of Israel met and worshipped. is a type. It's a shadow that helps us see what Jesus is going to be like. So what am I getting at? My point is, is that the Old Testament, all that two-thirds of the, the Bible has a purpose for you as a Christian, and that's to show you Jesus. Every story whispers his name. And you may say, I thought we were going to preach, Paul, you were preaching about Joshua today. I am. And I wanted to help you see first that why we look at Old Testament passages, and particularly this chapter in Joshua we're going to look at today, how does it point us to Jesus? So, um, I've been preaching, and every time I get an opportunity to preach, except for the very last time, I've been preaching through the book of Joshua. And you may be new here. You maybe haven't opened the book of Joshua ever or, or been a long time. So it's really important for us to see, first of all, the context of Joshua chapter 6 that we're going to look at. What led up to Joshua chapter 6? Um, Joshua, the book, comes right after the first five books of the Bible. Genesis through Deuteronomy, right? And it's a story, the book of Joshua is a story that continues the rest of the story. It's like to be continued, it's the sequel. It keeps expanding on the, first, the story in the first five books. And in that first five books, there's a story about how God chooses a people for himself. He names them Israel, and he makes promises to them to bless them. And one of those promises is that he was going to give them a place called the promised land. And Joshua, the book of Joshua, is about God bringing Israel into that promised land and him starting to fulfill those promises. And one of that, 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 that land there is filled with all kinds of different cities. Where he's going to be taking them is filled with all kinds of different cities full of people that are people who have rebelled against God. Um, they're really, really um, immoral people, very violent kinds of people, and um, not unlike actually Israel had been. And so when I say these nations are pretty bad people, 
God chose Israel not because they were any better than those other people. And every time they didn't follow God, they went back into the same ways of these cities. But God, being a holy and just God, is going to use his people in this book of Joshua to bring judgment on these cities. Heavy judgment, like destroying these cities and these people. And at the same time, he's bringing his people in to fulfill this promise, to give them this inheritance of a land. And through all of it, Genesis all the way up through Joshua, you're going to see grace and mercy because Israel didn't deserve it. They're just as bad as these other people, just like you and me. And you see grace and mercy through it all. One of the cities in this book of Joshua is this first city that we're going to be looking at in Joshua 6 called Jericho. And Jericho is a city that's known for all kinds of bad things, but one of the things they're really known for is their greed, their riches that they have, gold and silver and iron and bronze. Um, the, in Joshua chapter 2, though, we also see uh, this guy named Joshua, who's like Moses' successor. And Joshua comes as a general, and in chapter 2 of Joshua, we saw that he sent out two guys, to go into the city of Jericho and check it out to make sure to know what they're up against, but also to warn anybody in that city of the impending judgment. And that actually isn't the obvious thing that we see because they're checking things out and they get um, helped by actually a prostitute, which is, of all things, really strange for us to see. But this prostitute named Rahab in chapter 2, takes them in, and then these two spies warn her of the impending judgment. And she turns to Yahweh, to God, and says, he's God alone. And that's basically her coming to Jesus, except coming to God, coming to Yahweh. She hides them and makes a covenant, a promise with them. And they say that anybody, we're coming to destroy your town. Anybody that's in your house will be protected as long as you hang a scarlet cord out the window so that when we come, we see that, we know that that is the place of refuge. So they make this promise with Rahab. It's called a covenant. It says anybody that is in your house will not be destroyed. There's impending judgment, and they're warned about it. They warned her about it, and she has an opportunity to, to rescue people. And then in chapters 3 and 4... We see God bring his people across the River Jordan, miraculously, much like the Red Sea. And then chapter 5 is really strange. If you were here, it's basically God's telling the people of Israel to have their children, their boys circumcised, and then they celebrate the Passover. What's the whole point of that chapter? Is that God's telling his people to purify themselves and prepare for holy war, a battle that's about to come. And then at the end of chapter 5, after they've done that, we see a great warrior. Do you remember that? This divine warrior, this warrior shows up with a sword, and he tells Joshua to take his sandals off his feet because he's standing on holy ground. And Joshua bows down to that divine warrior. And the warrior, we know he's divine because he doesn't tell Joshua to stand up. He accepts worship from Joshua, which tells you we decided it has to be at least God showing up in some way 
probably is a picture back then already of Jesus. Okay, so a divine warrior, and now that leads us right up to chapter 6. So that we have the story of Jericho. And what I want us to do is, if you haven't already turned there, I'll have it up on the slides if you'd rather do that. But Joshua chapter 6, we're now at that point where the people are going to go in, and everybody in the land is terrified of the people of Israel. So let me just read to you the first few verses. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. In other words, they're scared. And none went out and none came in. So Jericho is kind of in a holding mode. They're terrified because they see the nation of Israel coming to take them, coming to bring in judgment. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Ye shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. You'll do that for six days. Seven priests are going to bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day, so they're going to go around the city seven, six times, but then on the seventh day, they're going to go around not just one time, but seven times. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. So what do we see there? God's giving Joshua instructions. What's this going to look like? And it is not like you would think, is it? It's bizarre. Walk around the city, quiet, once a day, and then on the seventh day, you're going to walk around it seven times, and they're going to blow seven trumpets? What do we have there? Um, we have three series of sevens. All right? Three series of sevens. Seven marches for seven days, seven circuits on the seventh day, and then seven trumpets sounded. The next verses, verse 9 through 11, so the people are going to obey what God told them to do. All right? The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, and then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. So we continue reading the rest of that chapter, the next few verses, and you're going to see that the people obey every day. Quiet. Complete silence. Can you imagine it's going to be a little scary in the city? Like there's probably 700,000 men marching around our city. Ava's eyes just went... Yeah, 700,000 men walking around the outside of your city just utterly silent. And what we see there is silence before the trumpets that are going to sound the impending judgment. Verse 15, on the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner now seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times 
And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers we sent. So what we see there is that the family of faithful Rahab is rescued from this great city. Who, her and whoever she brought in, sounds like all of her family and all that lived with her, were brought into the house and the people went in and destroyed the city except for Rahab. So the people shouted, verse 20, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. The wall fell down flat, and that is true history. It is not just fable. It's not myth. These walls just fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. What do we see there in the story? The walls fall down flat, and the city is burned with fire. Okay, and the chapter ends with this line. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Now, it's hard to see. Is that the Lord's fame was in all the land, or was Joshua's fame in all the land? Yes. <laughs> I think it's a little bit of both going on there. But grammatically, it has to be that Joshua's fame is spreading through all the land. So... Finally, of our story, how would you summarize that? Joshua, whose Hebrew name, if you say the word Joshua in Hebrew, is Yeshua. Now, how many of you have ever heard that name before? Yeshua, Josh, like Yeshua is what Jesus is. Jesus is like the Greek name, but his real name was Yeshua. He was told to be named Yeshua. So Yeshua is credited at the end of that chapter with winning the battle of Jericho. So What's happened here in that Joshua chapter 6 is the people have now started holy war. They've, they're starting to go in and take the promised inheritance that was given to them. The people of God, along with Gentile Rahab, received the inheritance of the promised land. Okay, so how do we see? That's the whole story of Joshua 6. I'm not going to read it all through. That's it. How do we see Jesus in that story? That's the question I want to try to answer for you today. Some people have preached this chapter, and, and it's okay to do this, right? That it's all about, um, it's kind of like a David and Goliath story. What's the Goliath in your life? And you got to take it down, right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and in this story, they, they make it like, what is the battle you're going through? And it just shows you God's going to win. Well, that, that is a valid understanding that applying it to our life, but it's not asking the question, how do I see Jesus in the Old Testament and in this story? And we want to ask that because that's what Jesus did. That's how Jesus read his Old Testament. Think about that. When he's on the road with those men to Emmaus, he shows them how to read the Old Testament. He says, look at the Old Testament for me. Find me, and that's going to help you understand who I am. That's what he's doing. So that's what we need to do in this story. So, and, and 
everything I'm going to show you today is not something I discovered. <laughs> I'm not going to, can't get any credit. There's a, uh, uh, three guys, um, Dr. Warren Gage and uh, a couple of others that helped me see this. And I was like, oh my goodness, it blew my mind. How many of you ever read the book of Revelation? There's a handful. How many think they've got a handle on understanding it? Okay, good. I don't see any hands. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting, right? It's so full of weird pictures and, and strange things. And, and sometimes some people will get all hung up with, okay, this means this. This is a picture of that. This, and, and maybe that's there. But I think when you get into that kind of mode, you're losing sight of what the book of Revelation is about. The book of Revelation was written to New Testament churches that were living under persecution of Nero. And this, they would have felt like we feel just a tiny bit right now. We feel the battle. And when they read the book of Revelation, they'd see a king who comes, brings judgment in all kinds of ways that's really, really huge. And the whole point is that Jesus wins. And that you get to be with Jesus at the end, right? It's a hope-filled book, right? It's easy to lose that. And when you see Joshua this way, I think you're going to see the book of Revelation in a different light. So first of all, we saw in Joshua 6, actually Joshua, that there's a great city known for its riches with gold, silver, iron, and bronze. In the book of Revelation, there is a great city known for its riches, gold, silver, and then it lists a whole bunch of other things. It's called Babylon. And it's called the great city over and over. These types, when you see these shadows in the Old Testament, they're only shadows. And when you get to the thing that it points to in the New Testament, it's always so much bigger than what you saw in the Old Testament. So that's what's going to happen. The city of Jericho was tiny, kind of pretty rich, but nothing like what Babylon is. Second, we saw two men sent into the city to help talk about impending judgment they help Rahab in Revelation you see two witnesses sit into the city to warn of impending judgment and you don't have to scribble down all these references I have a handout if you want to take this to home and look at it later okay two men and they're these two witnesses talk to Babylon tell the city about impending judgment in Joshua we see a prostitute in the city with her home marked by scarlet. In Revelation 17, the scarlet prostitute becomes a metaphor for the whole immoral and greedy people for the, the great city. In Joshua 5, the people were told to prepare themselves for the battle that's to come. And if you've read Revelations chapter 2 to 3, there's seven letters to the churches. Seven letters. It fills it up because it's just tiny in Joshua. But it's much bigger in, jo in Revelation. The seven churches are told to purify themselves, to return to Christ, to return to their first love in order to handle the persecution that's to come. Then in Revelation, you see a divine warrior who comes from heaven with a message of judgment and Joshua falls at his feet. In Joshua, in Revelation, a divine warrior comes from heaven with a message of judgment, and John falls at his feet. Now, who is that divine warrior in both of those passages, for sure? It's Jesus. All right, 
It gets better. <laughs> Joshua 6, we saw three series of seven, seven marches for seven days, seven circuits on the seventh day, and then seven trumpets sounded. In Revelation, you'll see it, three series of sevens, seven seals with that seventh seal opening up into seven trumpets. And on that seventh trumpet is revealed seven bowls of wrath. Have you ever wondered why Joshua told them to be quiet marching around Josh Jericho? Silence before the trumpets. If you read Revelation 8.1, before the, on the last seal that's open, before the seven trumpets are sounded, it says there's silence in heaven for about an hour. And then the family of Rahab is rescued from the great city. Interestingly, if you look in Revelation 18, when it's talking about the prostitute of Babylon, it says right there in verse 4, he says, come out of her, my people. So in other words, the people in Babylon, in that picture of immorality and greed, God's telling his people and the church in the New Testament to come out, just like Rahab was told to come out. The walls of the city fell down flat, and the city is burned with fire. Revelation, and I've got a couple of passages for you there. That's exactly what happens to the great city. The great city's walls fall down, and they're burned with fire. Joshua, at the end of chapter 6, Yeshua is credited with winning the battle of Jericho. And Yeshua, the Messiah, our Lord, is given all the glory for bringing judgment against the great city. Finally, the people of God, along with Gentile Rahab, receive their inheritance as the promised land. That's what the rest of the book of Joshua shows them, getting their inherited promised land. And what does Revelation show us at the end? And I'm going to read that here, Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2. We actually sang about it <laughs> this morning. Should I have this one right up here? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The new, the, the new heavens and new earth being inherited by the people of God, both Jew and Gentile together and the people of God. I don't know if this is kind of mind-blowing for you or you're just like, what? When we read the Old Testament, we need to look forward to what, how does it show Jesus and not just what Jesus did in the Gospels. Joshua shows us that Jesus is the... Is we long for this warrior who will come in and bring judgment and deliverance to you. And that's what Revelation shows us, that Jesus conquered and will conquer. Remember, Pastor Matt's talked about this time from the cross to the point that he comes back. Feels like it's kind of a tension, like it says it's conquered, but yet he hasn't fully conquered. That already not yet, Jesus did conquer. Revelation shows us that he did conquer. And that he's coming back and will bring judgment. So why does this matter? Why does this matter for our lives to be able to see in Joshua these links to the book of Revelation? Why would that matter? 
Well, first of all, I said it matters because you need to learn to read the Old Testament looking for Jesus. That's one reason, right? But I think there's a better reason in, in addition to that, right? Not better, but the greater Joshua. So there's Joshua in the book of Joshua. The greater Joshua is Jesus, the one who Joshua's life points to, rescues those who trust in him. When you read the book of Joshua, it's fun to get hung up in all these details, but realize that you would have been a a person of the city of Jericho, a Gentile. That you could have been like Rahab. And here's the thing. That greater Joshua rescues those who trust in him when? Now. Before he brings that judgment to this world. And when we see Joshua, we see a picture, just a tiny picture of the judgment that God is going to bring against this world for all of the sin. All of the sins that have not been dealt with in our human kind of justice will be given the full, mer- the full blow of justice that they deserve. But ye are Rahab. That we cannot lose sight of. We are people who have rebelled against him. You may think, that doesn't say, that's not me. I'm not that kind of person. But until you see that you are that kind of person, then there's no hope. Until you see that you are that kind of person. You and I have rebelled against our king, our maker, just like the people in the city of Jericho and the future cities we're going to look at as the, in the book of Joshua. We are those people. And Israel themselves were that people. They did not deserve any of it. And here's another reason why this matters. Do you know other Rahabs in your life? There are others who won't, who aren't clinging to Jesus, who don't know that he is their only hope. In fact, they don't even recognize themselves as being Rahabs. They need to see that their only hope is going to be rescued now by the greater Joshua, by Jesus. And here's the question that I have for you this morning. Have you run to that place of shelter where that scarlet cord hangs? He's your only hope. If you are trusting in anything, anything other than Jesus, what I mean by that is, is there any doubt in your mind? Do you put any hope on Okay, Jesus died, and I think I've done a pretty good job. Then you're counting on your own efforts. You've minimized how great your sin is, because one sin is all it takes. One sin is all it takes that we deserve judgment, because when I sin against an infinite God, I deserve an infinite judgment, just like the people of Jericho received judgment that wasn't even infinite. It was just temporary their lives were ended waiting for the eternal judgment we cling to we have to cling to christ only he's your only hope nothing you can do is good enough and everything you've done that's awful that you can think of both things put behind you and cling to jesus only he is the king who will as we sang if you are 
with him today, like if you have turned to Christ, said, Jesus, you are my only hope. Nothing I can do will merit salvation. You've turned, you're turning away from your sins, clinging to Jesus. That means on that judgment day, when you read the book of Revelation, you're the ones that are the saints. When you read the book of Joshua, you're the people of Israel being brought into the promised land. If you haven't turned to Christ, if your hope is in, in Jesus plus this, or not even Jesus at all, you will be on the other end of the judgment. But if you're with Christ, all of the pain and the battle right now that you're in, all of the suffering, all of the, the broken relationships, all of the, the, the physical ailments you have, all of the things that weigh down on you, the sadness, on that day, Jesus will wipe away all those tears. He will say, you're my child. And he only says that to those who come to him now. So today is the day. Would you come to Christ? Let me pray. And I'm going to have the, the uh, worship team come. And um, I think we're going to repeat one of our other songs, if that's all right. God, we are so thankful that you have shown yourself that we are not wandering around, stumbling in the dark, trying to find our way. At least we don't have to be. You've shown yourself preeminently the best way through Jesus. And as we read your whole Bible, these stories in the Old Testament that show us who you are, the kind of God you are, and the kind of rescuer that you are, we, we know that we, apart from your grace, would be on the receiving end of that judgment. God, would you help us today, if there's anybody here today that does not, cannot say, Jesus is my only hope, I know that if I would die, I would be with him because of Jesus' work only. Would you be caused today to be the day that they would cry out to you and ask you to save them? For those of us who are in the middle of the battles that we do face and we're in right now, help us to see that our greater Joshua has won already and that we will be with him on that final day when he will wipe away all tears and we will worship with him unafraid unashamed, full of hope. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.